Stay hungry, stay foolish. We have been spoon-fed the notion that creativity is the province of genius, of those favoured brilliant few whose moments of insight arrive in unpredictable flashes of divine inspiration. And if we are not a genius, we might as well pack it in and give it up. Either we have the gift or we don't. Today's guest shows that simply is not true. Recent research has shown that there is a predictable science behind achieving commercial success in any creative endeavor. From writing a popular novel to starting up a successful company to creating an effective marketing campaign. As the world's most creative people have discovered, we are enticed by the novel and the familiar. By understanding the mechanics of what today's guest calls the creative curve, the point of optimal tension between the novel and the familiar, everyone can better engineer mainstream success. Our guest today reveals the four laws of creative success and identifies the common patterns behind their achievement. We welcome Big Data Entrepreneur, CEO of TrackMaven, and author of the fantastic Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, Alan Gannett. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man. It's great to have you on the show. I, I was telling you off air, I got so much from this book and I'm going to jump straight into it because I love what you did. You started the book in a way by telling us of your aim for writing this, that it did not come to you as a light bulb moment. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've always been someone who sort of over time has sort of seen patterns. And one of the patterns that I saw is, you know, most of my day is spent working with marketers because we, you know, we work in marketing data. And these marketers, these people who are supposed to be some of the most creative people in their industries would tell me things like, oh, I'm not that creative. And the more I listened, the more I heard that When people think about creativity, they think about it as a fixed asset. You either have it or you don't have it. And this is actually pretty far from the truth of how creativity actually works. And that that disconnect, that gap started getting to me. The book really came out of that sort of frustration almost from, from seeing that gap. You mentioned that you've always been addicted to patterns. Even as a kid, you were addicted to patterns. And I love how this is manifested in your life in two ways. One being your day job, which is your CEO and founder of TrackMaven, which is a data analytics company. And then your night passion, let's call it, where you wrote this book and you used those two things and fused them together to create this new approach to creativity. Yeah, I just think what's interesting is that there's a lot of things out there that I think are hard to explain, creativity being one of them. And as humans, we have this cognitive bias, and we, when we can't explain things, we sort of chalk it up to mysticism, magic, you know, natural-born talent, all this kind of stuff. And you know, there's a quote that stuck with me. I think it was Kobe Bryant who, who said it, but I may be getting it wrong, which he said, you know, it's almost offensive when people say that I'm talented because I'm the first to to the practice. I stay the latest. I work the hardest. Um, and when you talk about talent like that, it's almost writing off all that hard work that I do. And I think you start to see that pattern over and over again when you look at the creative fields where it isn't that for some people it's super easy. It just comes to them. It's actually for everyone, even these people we think of as it being easy. The truth is that's actually not that easy. And so for me, that that sort of disconnect between public perception and the reality of the history of creativity, the reality of the science of creativity, 
that's a big gap. That's a big disconnect. That's something I'm really, really fascinated by. You really do do a lot in this book to close that gap and, and make people feel, hey, I can actually do this as a framework for me to do this now, which is often where people get lost. It's like trying to go to the gym without a program. And you've given us the program for the for creativity. That's a great metaphor, actually. I want to just hammer on that for a second, actually, because I, I really love that metaphor because one of the biggest misconceptions we have is that we think of our brain as a fixed asset. But the reality is that like our muscles, our brain is very adaptable. And the more you do something, the better you get at it. So there's this, there's this famous study that found that the longer that someone was a taxi driver the larger the part of the hippocampus that's tied to navigational skills became. And the more years, the larger it became. And what they found is that when you look at bus drivers who drive the same route every day and don't have to constantly navigate, this is all pre-Uber and GPS, of course, they found is that for bus drivers, there wasn't any difference. And so what you find is there's this whole interesting research field around neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which basically shows us that the more you do certain tasks, the more your brain adapts to those tasks. And very much like the gym, you actually get better at things. And that's so misunderstood. So I, I, I love that metaphor. Like in the gym, you have to keep changing your program. If you don't change your program, you'll plateau. And going back to what you say, when you think of, of the workplace now, people put in open spaces and they think that's will make people automatically innovate people over to you now you know we'll put in a few uh foosball tables we'll put in some nice colors and creativity will happen but the reality is everybody people's jobs need to have learning built into them you talk about this if somebody's too expert at the role they still need to have childlike wonder or they still need to have one foot at the edge of society where people are pushing boundaries. Otherwise, they can't fill themselves with new creativity, new data to feed creativity. Yeah. So this is one of the really interesting things is that when they do studies looking at establishment figures, what they find is that teams that are full of establishment figures and teams that are full of all fringe figures. So think about maybe in Hollywood, your sort of indie artist versus your sort of big studio. They find is that actually both of those teams are outperformed by teams that are a combination of the establishment and the fringe, or individual people who themselves are a combination of those two things. So for the book, I interviewed 25 living creative geniuses, achievers, whatever you want to call them. These were Oscar winners, billionaires. These were Emmy Award winners, Michelin star chefs. And across all these interviews, what I saw over and over again was that these people who had these successful long careers are insanely curious because they know that a huge part of creativity isn't just skill. It isn't just craft. It isn't just reputation, but it's also adding that right touch of novelty, that right touch of a new idea to stay in the zeitgeist. You know, the reason why the Beatles have, you know, are viewed as what they are, the Beatles, is that throughout the 60s, they were changing their style. They were adapting with their audience. And that's incredibly important if you want to have a long, sustained creative career. That tees us up nicely because you start the book telling us about Paul McCartney and his smash hit song yesterday because people think, and he even thought this came to him as a spark of genius, but you totally disprove that fact and I love how you do it. Yeah, so Paul McCartney is a really great example of the trope around a flash of genius. So whenever you hear a story of creative genius, there's always this moment of aha, a light bulb moment, some big epiphany. And with these moments, 
What you find is that people, even the ones who experience them say, oh, well, it's magical. I don't know where it came from. But there's a logical leap there. We don't understand it, so we say it's magical. We don't understand it, so we say it's inspiration. The reality is we actually know quite a bit about how aha moments work. So there's a lot of really fascinating research into aha moments. And basically what they are is it's how our right hemisphere processes information. Our right hemisphere processes information sort of right below the level of consciousness. And its task is to constantly try and find new ways to relate distant ideas together. So think about like metaphors, like that's all your right hemisphere versus your left hemisphere is logical processing, very step-by-step, very conscious type of processing. So what's interesting is that our right hemisphere is constantly doing this work. It's constantly trying to connect new things together. And so this is why, by the way, you hear so many stories of aha moments in the shower or Paul McCartney famously woke up with the melody for yesterday's head, you know, sort of in bed, you know, either about to go to sleep or waking up because your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere kind of are like a loud, you know, lab, par- lab partner in college and a quiet lab partner in college. Your left hemisphere is talking. They're working out the problem very verbally. Your right hemisphere is the dorky one sort of sitting in the corner thinking through it. And only once they get the answer, do they go, Hey, I got it. And if your left hemisphere is too loud, you won't hear your right hemisphere. So this is why we have aha moments in the shower, when we're commuting, when we're driving, when we're on a run, it's not that, you know, our shower is inspirational, although maybe you've been working out. It's that those are moments when your left hemisphere is quiet. You can hear the ideas that have been percolating in your right hemisphere. So what this tells us is two things. One, It tells us that if you want to have aha moments, well, you have to give yourself space. You have to give yourself quiet. You have to find some meditative activity. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because, well, Paul McCartney, you know, wakes up like everyone else. Why did he wake up with the melody for yesterday? And this is where scientists point out, and there's this quote I have in the book, which I think is really important from a scientist Um, Edward Bowden. And the quote is, you can't have insights about things you don't know anything about. Paul McCartney grew up in a musical household, surrounded by musical parents. He literally played in a cover band for years. So yeah, he dreams about music and we don't. J.K. Rowling spent her entire childhood reading because her parents were fighting. And then in college, she had library finds. She had so many books out. And so yeah, she dreams about characters and plots and you don't. But, you know, me as a social media person, like I think about social media ideas and Paul McCartney probably doesn't. So what goes in is what comes out. Our right hemisphere is constantly processing information, but you need to give it the material to actually work with. And so what you find is that when you interview creative achievers, one of the things that's most surprising is that they are consistently hyperactive consumers. And it's not consumption in a sort of social media way where it's learning a little bit about a lot, but it's very narrow. They learn a lot about a little. They've read every mystery book in the library. They've watched every movie in their genre. They've read every technical paper in their field. What you find is that that sort of deep, impassioned consumption, that is what gives your right hemisphere the materials to do its job, the materials to have those aha moments. So it's not magic. It's actually just science. It totally works to your background. Like I, I thought this was fantastic that your skill was this, was your passion, finding patterns in whatever you did. And 
then you took that, you created Track Maven as a company that does that in social media and in, in, in digital marketing. And then you went, actually, what if this was a framework for creativity? But you tell us how you deconstructed the Wheel of Fortune and your visit to the Wheel of Fortune. I'd love if you share this with the others. This is great. So for those of you not in the States, Wheel of Fortune is a, a game show. You spin a wheel, you guess letters. And I had this phase when I was 18 where I was like, I really want to get on a game show because it seems so easy. Like they just seem like they print money. Like how hard could it be? And so I um, was always sort of tinkering and reverse engineering stuff as a kid. I think that comes from being an only child of parents who worked a lot and just having a lot of time on my hands. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to get on Wheel of Fortune. So I applied to I applied to all these game shows and um, you know Wheel of Fortune I got the audition um, and so you know you go it's a big room and you know before the audition what I did is I watched and I never really watched the show before but I watched hours and hours and hours of Wheel of Fortune and specifically I was paying attention to the first few minutes when they do the introductions and stuff because I want to see what what makes a contestant and I read blog posts and articles and forum posts about people's experience auditioning. And what I kind of teased out is they don't really care how you do on the puzzles. Like they just want people who are high energy, who can talk loud, who can enunciate, who don't mind making fun of themselves. So I was like, I can do that. <laughs> so I drank a whole bunch of espresso. I went in, you do a written test. I did terribly on the written test. And then you do like a practice audition. And I got up there and I did an impression of Elmo from Sesame Street, which was really <laughs> atrocious. And I had drunken like two espressos. I was like ready to go. And um, lo and behold, a few weeks later, they called me and I um, got a spot on Wheel of Fortune. I ended up, by the way, I should have studied the puzzles because I lost terribly on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> um, but I did, I did get on. And then a few months later, I thought, oh, well, like, I wonder if I can do that again. So I applied to another game show that was on MTV at the time. And uh, I also got cast on that. And so, you know, if you ever want to get cast in a game show, give me a call. <laughs> nice, man. Nice. You can deconstruct that for people, which you actually do in the book. You deconstruct novels, films, etc. And we'll talk about those in a little while. But through all your passion, and this is what I was talking about that I loved, your day passion, which is your job, say data and data analysis, and then your night passion being, how do I use this? How do I point this skill that I have at something else? And that when they came together, you discovered there's patterns in creativity. You uncovered four laws to the creative curve. I'd love if, you, if you'd share them with us. Yeah. So let me give you sort of a high level, then we can dive in more to any of them. So what I did for the book is I approached this question of, is creativity magical using sort of three avenues of research? One is really going through the history of creativity and genius over time. Those concepts, they've actually changed quite a bit over the centuries. Two is really digging deep into the science and the academic research around creativity. We've been studying creativity across neuroscience, uh, sociology, anthropology, psychology. There's actually a lot of research on how creativity works. And then third, what I did is I actually interviewed these creative achievers I mentioned. So these are folks like Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman. Um, you know, David Rubenstein, the billionaire, Alexis Ohanian from Reddit, um, Nina Jacobson, the producer behind Crazy Rich Asians, Hunger Games, People vs. O.J. Simpson, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix. It's like, sort of eclectic mix of people. And from these interviews, what I found was that 
they all followed the same patterns of things they did to enhance their creativity. And some of them were conscious of it, and some of them were unconscious of it. Some of them you know, describe what they were doing, but they weren't aware that it was a pattern. Other ones were like, I do this because someone taught me this and blah, blah, blah. And there were four patterns I saw. One, and we already talked a little bit about it, is this idea of consumption, where these creatives spend huge amounts of time consuming. It's actually really interesting because, you know, we think of like a screenwriter is always writing, but really screenwriters might not write for a long time. They might have big gaps between projects, but consumption is very consistent. Second, second, what I found is that they all, they all understand constraints. They all understand things like frameworks, story structure, story arcs, formulas. What are those ways that you're supposed to tell a story in a musical, in a pop song, in a novel? And that's really important because one of the things you mentioned is that what scientists have found is that the ideas that we tend to be most interested in are the ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. They're familiar enough to feel safe, but novel enough to be interesting and new. They don't actually, people don't actually like the radically new ideas. We tend to find them too weird, too fringe. And so what you find is that understanding the frameworks, the arcs, the formulas, the structures, whatever you want to call it in your industry, understanding those is critical because that's what gives you that familiar baseline. By knowing what is the structure of a three-act sitcom, that's what allows you to then create your own novel twist on a sitcom to just turn the dial enough to make it interesting. And this is, you know, you think about Star Wars was a Western in space, for example. Harry Potter is mm-hmm. a pretty normal orphan rising rags to riches story. It's just they're wizards. And so what you find is that the most successful creative products, the ones that have the biggest impact, are actually not the ones that are radical. They're the ones that are just a little bit radical. The third law I talk about is that these creative achievers, we think of them as these sort of solo geniuses like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, my personal favorites, Taylor Swift, obviously. But you find that we think of them as these sort of these, these big names and lights. But the reality is all of these creative achievers are part of what I call a creative community. They have people around them who provide different things for them, whether it's you know, they're giving them feedback, frameworks, giving them credibility and reputation. And we can talk about communities for hours. But the idea that creativity is a solo phenomenon is just kind of comical. I mean, Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak and multiple employees on day one, right? Elon Musk for SpaceX hired some of the best rocket scientists. Taylor Swift has songwriters who help write her songs with her. This idea of creativity as the sort of um, the, the, the one big name That's really just the result of PR and marketing. That's not how creativity really works. So you have to get rid of that internalization. The fourth and final one is that creatives know that their audience is essential to the process. They're not creating for themselves. They're creating for their audience. And so the result is that their processes are highly iterative. They want to incorporate feedback throughout their creative process because they understand their goal isn't to create something just for their own self-expression. That's something that people who aren't successful at creativity say, oh, well, I'm just creating art for myself. That's just not reality. People don't just create art to hide it in their garage. Almost every artist, the point is they want to get a reaction out of the audience. There is a social phenomenon to art. And acknowledging and owning that is really important. So the fourth law is iterations. Where these great creatives, because they want to make sure that they're creating that thing 
that's going to be just familiar enough and just novel enough to push people forward. They want to get feedback in their creative process to really nail it. So those are the four laws. It was really amazing because it was something where across all these interviews, across all these genres, they appeared over and over and over again. And I think there's something that is not out of reach, but it's also not easy. It's just, there's just a process to it. It takes work, but it's not magic. You've given us the program for the gym, for the mind gym here at the creative gym. But let's go back to the origin of the myth, because you mentioned there Steve Jobs, and he he also said, if you ask a creative person or a talented person how they do what they do, they often cannot tell you. And you say this, that some people consciously knew what they were doing. Some of the creative people he interviewed, others didn't know. But through consumption, through that driven curiosity to find out more about whatever passion they had, they automatically probably mentally embedded patterns that they were unaware of and then worked to those patterns. But you go right back and you talk about Mozart and him being one of the origins of the myths, but this goes right back to ancient Greece. It's really fascinating. The idea of of an artist and a creative has morphed and changed over time, but there's pieces of today's version of a creative that started, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago. I mean, Plato and Aristotle wrote about sort of God's role in art and how really what an artist is doing is replicating God's work. Um, And that sort of brings in the sort of divine elements to creativity. But actually, it's also interesting because it's also saying that the artist isn't really doing anything that magical. They're just imitating. So it actually took much later that we started developing the idea of sort of the hero artist And really, this came to blossom during the Renaissance, where what you saw is that there was this sort of golden economic age in Italy and Europe. And what this drove was there was a huge increase in discretionary income among the merchant class who wanted to live like kings. All of a sudden, they started buying art. And so there was a supply and demand equation. Artists started making more money. They were able to demand better working conditions. They were able to demand attention. They were able to demand fame. So the idea of sort of the hero artist emerged. And um, Vasari in his book that he wrote where he cataloged the great artists really sort of set up this idea of the hero artist and the genius. And so the idea of the artist is really this social construct that's changed and morphed over time. You know, there's been times when the word genius, for example, in the late 1800s, was a dirty word. In the late 1800s, the idea of genius meant that, well, you were out of balance. You were so good at one thing, you must be terrible at everything else. So there's actually this movement towards sort of propping up the average man. You know, the average man who is average at everything, well, that's actually a model citizen. We don't want these crazy geniuses. And that that sort of went away in the early 1900s, but there's still elements of that, right? There's still elements of the crazy genius. When we talk about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, we sort of, we like to highlight their sort of the zaniness of them. And that's part of the story. That's part of the myth. And so the idea of a creative, the idea of a creative genius seems so obvious to us today but it really is actually a social phenomenon, and it really is this construct that's morphed and changed over time. I mean, right now we're actually seeing this literally right now where, you know, in the 90s, songwriters who would write for pop musicians were encouraged to not, you know, were, were asked basically not to put their names on things. So, you know, let's, let's just pretend that the pop artist actually wrote everything. Now we're seeing this movement towards famous songwriters, people like Max Martin and Benny Blanco, who are like, no, my name's going on and people are going to know who I am. 
and they're starting to build their own name recognition for themselves. And that's a cultural swing, right? But that person was always there. We're just now recognizing them as part of the sort of creativity story. And so I think the fact that this thing is actually quite fluid and not as firm as it seems is a really important point to understand when it comes to creativity. I love what you talked about, about the shift in in discretionary income. So people started then spending more money and looking for art, and that drove the artist or the creative economy in a way. You hit something that's so important. I mean, one of the things people have to understand is that art and capital are so intertwined, right? In order for an artist to make money, they have to get paid for it. In order for museums to buy art, they have to receive money from donors or from governments. And so economic success is actually quite tied in with artistic success. And I think sometimes we we miss that, but it's not... It's not some big surprise that the cultures that have developed the most art, think about the high times of the Egyptian empire, are also some of the cultures that are incredibly wealthy, or at least have people who are incredibly wealthy. Let's jump from that into this then. You talk about timing being absolutely key, because if I have a great idea, but it's too far right of the bell curve, that it's too out there as an idea. It's too unfamiliar and it's too novelty. And also the timing is wrong. It won't gain traction. Timing is essential to creativity because timing is equally as important to creativity as skill. You can be a technically skilled artist, but if you're painting something that has either been done before or is too radical, no one's actually going to care. No one's going to find any interest. And so timing is this really interesting thing. And this really goes into what sociologists call the systems model of creativity, which is this idea that creativity exists within the sort of social dynamic of culture. There's no creativity in a vacuum. Every artist has been exposed to other art. People, the viewers, have been exposed to other art. So we're sort of judging everything relative to our shared experiences. And so this is interesting because this ties in with what a lot of um, neuroscientists have found, which is that basically as people... We're scared of things that are unfamiliar, but we're also intrigued by things that are novel. So this sort of seems like a contradiction, but what it really is is our brain's elegant way of balancing risk and reward. We like things that are familiar enough to be safe, but still novel enough in other ways to be interesting and intriguing. And so what you find when it comes to timing is that the creative ideas, the creative trends, the pieces of art, whatever – that tend to take off tend to be those ideas that have one foot in the familiar and one foot in the novel. And so what these great creatives do is they're very good at understanding that. They're very good at understanding what is that little twist that they're going to add. And this goes back to what we were saying before, where the best way to do this is to understand what are those frameworks? What are those things that people do, those ways to tell stories? How can you do that? So Kurt Vonnegut talks about in a lecture he once gave, about how for his master's thesis, what he did is he took a bunch of great novels and he actually mapped out the story arcs of those novels. And what he found was that there was four recurring story arcs that appeared over and over again. There were things like rags to riches. There were things like a Cinderella story. There was man in the hole. There was these, these story arcs that you'd see repeated in novel writing. And by understanding those, you could then understand, well, how can I plot my own twist on those? How can I just change the dynamic a little bit to make it interesting? 
This is why there's so many movies that are, we call them Shakespearean, even though they don't seem like they're truly you know, a Shakespeare remake. They have the same plot architecture, but they're set in a new context, a new place, a new set of characters, because those are all story arcs that as humans, we know we relate to. And so that balance of familiarity and novelty, that's really the key to timing. And that's something that can be unlocked through a combination of consumption and imitation. You mentioned that, Kurt Vonnegut, and I loved the way you shared that in the book because that's where you introduce the frameworks and that when we work to those frameworks, they can be good things because oftentimes we think of regulation or we think of constraints as restricting, but the restriction can actually be good because then we have almost like when you were talking about this, I thought of various types of cookie cutters that you kind of go, okay, well, I just need to build my material that works in that cookie cutter. Uh, and that's a really good way to to create because having the limits actually main, means I have something to work towards. And it's, again, kind of like a similar analogy to the program. I know I can only train for an hour a day, so I'll work hard within that hour. The thing that's important to understand is that this is also works in sort of subtle ways. Like no one wants to watch an eight-hour movie with no protagonist. Right. Like there's a certain sort of form to art that we sort of expect it in. And sometimes those things, we don't recognize them consciously, but they're there. You would notice if you sat in an eight hour movie, right? You would, you would know, but we don't realize that that's actually part of the form until we experience something that clearly impinges on it. Closely aligned to that, Alan, you'd kind of touched on this earlier on was if something's too novel, it will get rejected by society. And that that goal for a creator is actual social acceptance in a way. Yeah, and this this is one of the points that you can sort of get into arguments with people about. And I've had my fair share of arguments about this. And there's a lot of really interesting academic papers that sort of talk about this, this too. But basically, the problem with the concept of creativity is it's actually impossible to truly separate it from recognition without basically just talking about productivity. Because Recognition doesn't have to be a big group, right? You could have a niche community that's really excited about something. Like you could have like, you know, people who like to knit being really excited about some new knitting design. So it doesn't have to be big. But for something to be deemed creative, what academics say is that it has to be deemed both novel and useful. It has to be both new and useful, new and valuable. And so useful and valuable, well, value is a social construct. We have to agree that something is valuable for it to be valuable. So if a bunch of art critics say, oh, that's cool, well, then it is cool. Well, is some, can something be objectively cool? No, right? We have to, as a group, agree to label things as valuable. And thus, we have to agree to label things as creative. And so social recognition from a group, big or small, is inherently intertwined with creativity. Otherwise, you're just talking about productivity. We need to win over two types of people here, the gatekeeper and the individual. I'd love if you shared that with the audience. What's interesting when you talk about social recognition is that it's one of the key elements to that is you have to have the opportunity to get recognized. And so that opportunity to get recognized is actually where a lot of creatives fall. Because what they don't do is they don't learn how to promote themselves, how to gain access to the gatekeepers who are changing, by the way, because the internet, you know, it used to be with music, it used to be the record labels. Now it's the people who curate the Spotify playlist on Spotify, right? So it's changing. They're not going away, but they're changing because you need that opportunity 
to gain recognition, to actually be recognized. And so there's sort of multiple actors within the idea of creativity is the gatekeepers and there's the individual and they all sort of interoperate and interplay. And so that's one of the things that actually is also why you see that creative fields are actually some of the least diverse. You know, this is sort of counterintuitive. We think of creativity as progressive, but as we sort of seen over the last two years with Me Too and Harvey Weinstein, there's sort of a reckoning going on because Hollywood has traditionally been actually very undiverse. And the reason why is there's a lot of studies that show that we like to mentor, sort of take people under our wing who look like us, talk like us, think like us, have similar backgrounds. But since that human and social element to creativity is so important, that actually makes creative fields less meritocratic, which is really interesting. So even though we think of creative fields as inherently liberal, inherently progressive, Hollywood up until recently was actually somewhat, not politically, culturally a conservative area, a conservative field, a conservative art. And that is actually a really important thing to understand if you want to change how creativity works. And that's such a valuable point because you talk about mentorship and you talked about the termites. These were the group of kids who were studied for IQ over their lifetime. And it wasn't just their IQ that was the measure of their success. It was their nurture. So it was how they were actually given opportunities throughout life. And this tied really strongly to the idea of mentorship as well. It works both ways. So there's this famous study done by Lewis Terman, where he surveyed these kids for genius level IQs. And there was about 2000 of them. He called them his termites, which is kind of creepy, but whatever. <laughs> and he creepy. sent them a survey five years about their, their life and their trajectory and all this stuff. And he eventually died, but his protégés kept doing it. And what was interesting is what you find is that IQ and creative success are actually um, relatively disassociated. There, in those 2,000 kids, there was no one who became a household name. There was no one who became super famous. There was no Nobel laureates. In fact, the only two children who were tested and later went on to become Nobel laureates were two kids who didn't make the genius cut. And so it's not a just about IQ. It's not just about raw talent. There's a much broader set of things that come into play. And I think this is why a lot of people get stuck. They say, oh, well, I'm, I'm talented. You know, I, I'm a good painter. I've practiced for so long. You know, I just need, I just need to make it happen. I just need a someone, I need luck. It's not luck, right? It's being at that right place at the right time, knowing the right people who are able to help you get that social recognition. This is why being amidst people, and you call it clustering, clustering with people who are like-minded creators creates this kind of overspill of creativity. Yeah. So there's a bunch of really fascinating research. Uh, Richard Florida popularized it um, all around. His, his sort of thing is the creative class. And basically what sociologists find is there's this effect where the denser the people are, the denser creatives are, the more productive they are. So it's not just, okay, within 10 square miles, you know, how many creatives are there, but how closely packed are they? And the reason why, since there's this whole social and human dynamic, you know, running into the coffee shop, being able to have that lunch meeting is actually really, really important to the creative process. So what you find is this effect called clustering, where this network effect happens, where, you know, you see this obviously in San Francisco, especially the Soma area, where there's all these startups where, you know, creatives go there. And then other creatives go there because they want to be near there. 
And that makes them more productive. So the area becomes even more in demand. So even more people go there. And this clustering effect is very real. And this is why, you know, if you want to break into art, well, you, if you really want to break into art, you actually have to move to one of the key art capitals of the world. If you actually want to break into fashion, you have to move to New York, Milan, Paris, London. Like you have to do it. Um, and even with the internet, even with Skype, even with video chat, that's not really changing. You still have to do those things. And so I think people um, really sort of, on one hand, understand that. They understand the idea of, well, I have to move L- LA to make it, but they don't quite understand all of the reasons why. And it's not about moving to LA to luck into things. It's about moving to LA to have the opportunity to follow up with people in person, to go to events, to be that person who's a little bit too persistent, but gets their way in the door. I love that. And it's kind of like forced serendipity in a way yes. to actually give yourself the opportunity. Great yeah. Time. So you, so let's move to creative curve because we're going to run out of time. And this is beautiful. I love the way you've used this. Uh, you've created this idea. And you talk about the idea of falling in and out of popularity or in and out of style. And for this, you use the Lisa test. Let, let's, uh, let's share that with our audience. Sure. So one of the things when it comes to creativity, it's important to understand is that things do become popular and then become unpopular. And so an example I give in the book is I tell a story about how when I give talks, I ask people to name famous Lisas. You know, who are some famous Lisas you know? And I always get usually these four answers, um, Lisa Lampanelli, Lisa Kudrow, Lisa Bonet, and Lisa Lampanelli. And I ask people, okay, what do all these women have in common? And usually there's some smart ass who says, oh, well, they're all women or they're all famous, which are bad answers. The true answer is that they were all born in the 1960s. And why that's interesting is that for almost every single year of the 1960s in the United States, the name Lisa was the number one name in the entire country. Like everyone was naming their girl, um, their baby girl, Lisa. By 2016, it had fallen to the 833rd most popular name. And there were only 342 baby girls in the entire country named Lisa. The entire country. So where did all the Lisas go? That was the headline in a New York Times article, which I thought was awesome. And so what you have to understand is that things eventually fall in. As they fall in favor, they also fall out of favor. And this is because of that idea a familiarity and novelty. Well, eventually, as something becomes perme- permeating into our culture, it becomes over-familiar. And so it used to be that right blend of the familiar and the novel starts to become too familiar. So we start to get disinterested in it. We start to move on to that next thing. And so it's actually really interesting. So scientists find that there's basically this upside-down U-shaped relationship between exposure and familiarity and preference. So when we first are exposed to something, we don't really like it. We think it's too new. Then the more we see it, the more we like it up until a point. Then we get bored of it. Then the more we see it, the less we like it. So you can kind of think about it as an upside down U. And so in academia, this is called the inverted U-shape relationship between familiarity and preference. And I rebranded that the creative curve because hashtag marketing, and that would be a bad book title. Um, But that understanding is actually critical because that's what drives so much of our culture is this tension between familiarity and novelty and this resulting U-shape you see with really any trend. Yeah, and, and this is where you introduced the mere exposure effect, and s- some of our audience may not be familiar with that. And I love the way you explain this, Alan. 
from the perspective of racism and how our brain works from a neuroscience perspective? Yeah. So basically, you know, like I said before, there's these two urges, right? We crave the familiar for the safe and we crave the novel for the reward and the potential sort of excitement. And basically this tension comes from these two different biological mechanisms. One is that we're wired to fear the unfamiliar, right? Think about when you were a cave dweller, you didn't want to go in the cave you've never slept in before because who knows what's in there? You might die, right? This is also a big part of the racism. So what you find is that when you expose people to faces of people from different races in an academic setting, what you find is that over time, they get less afraid. It's not actually they like that person more. It's that they're less afraid. So familiarity breeds safety. Familiarity breeds safety. So that's one of the forces behind the creative curve. The other one, novelty, what's interesting about novelty is that the reason we crave things that are novel is that things that are novel represent potential reward. Think about if you were a hunter-gatherer and you saw some weird berry in a field. Well, you'd go, oh, this could be, this berry could be my next meal. It could be delicious. But if that berry was too new, if it looked too weird, you'd go, oh, I probably shouldn't eat that. <laughs> so that tension between the familiar and the novel, that's what it's all about. And to, to wrap this all together, you tell us the story of Ben and Jerry's because you really frame the entire creative curve within the work they do. And it'd be great to share that with our audience. Yeah, so I end the book with a story about how I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben and Jerry's, which is like um, amazing. By the way, best job in America. Somehow they're all skinny, which I'm like, it's very <laughs> suspicious. Um, but anyway, they every year have to come up with eight to 12 new Ben and Jerry's flavors. And what I thought was so interesting is that how they do this is really following those various steps, but they do it at an institutional level. So throughout most of the year, the team is actually just actively consuming, sometimes literally, pun intended, but they're doing these things called trend treks where they go to different cities, they try restaurants, bars, they see what ingredients people are making, they're reading all the food magazines, they're on Instagram, they're seeing what are the trends that are sort of percolating up. Then what they do is they have a set of constraints, a set of things that define what can be in Ben and Jerry's. They have nutritional constraints, they have ingredient constraints, they have manufacturing constraints. And using those ideas from all their consumption, they come up with a list of 200 ideas of things they think are that right balance of the familiar and the novel. 200 ideas. They then chop up the list and they send a survey to their email newsletter subscribers that has two questions, two questions per flavor. One, how likely are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique it is, which is basically how familiar is it and how novel is it? Because you would think just ask people how likely are you to buy. But if you just ask people that, you'll just end up with all brownie, cookie, caramel, crunch flavors, right? So if you want to have a brand that's pushing forward, you want that tension. You want that tension between present commercial viability and novelty because that's what's going to make you innovative. Then they release a flavor and then they collect feedback and they iterate. They have a sampling process. They do focus groups for big launches. And then once they actually launch it, they collect sales data. They look on social media. They actually have the customer call center in the headquarters so they can hear what's the feedback. Do people like it? Do they not like it? Should we pull the flavor? 
and they kill flavors all the time. In fact, they actually have a flavor graveyard in their headquarters in Vermont. And of course, the the tombstones are actually Vermont marble, which I thought was cute kitsch. Um, And so that's really interesting. And so the Ben and Jerry's example, I think, is really powerful because they've done this at an institutional level. And the point that this really sort of brought home for me is that when you do this process right, if you're building a team or if you're building a company, the process itself becomes the product. The process itself becomes the product. The people at Ben & Jerry's, they're not afraid to fail because as long as they're learning and refining the process, they know that they're doing a good job. You see this if you read Ed Catmull's book about his time running Pixar. What they did so well is they built psychological safety by making the process the product. And I think that's what it's all about. If you're building a team, if you're building a company, how do you create that psychological safety necessary for creativity to flourish? That's a great message. And it's actually the one I pulled out of that chapter as well. I thought that was the key message. Last thing to ask you is, you mentioned earlier on about consumption being extremely important. You know you had a childhood where you actually escaped to data, where you went into this data world. And I, I, when you were explaining that, I pictured you like Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind, just with data everywhere, <laughs> all the walls. <laughs> it was not that glamorous. <laughs> but uh, so, so here's the question. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about you and, and how this manifested for you. And you talk about so many people. You talk about Ted Sarandos in Netflix and how he worked in a, as a video store clerk. And therefore, he delved into the world of video and he knew every genre. And it became a human recommendation engine. And then I thought, this is my concern about children today. And, and you mentioned social media and bite-sized content, that they're not getting deep into things enough. And I thought this was the kind of message that I, I would like to pull out of this from a, from a parent perspective, is that we need to give them that. We need to give them good data to consume. Otherwise, what are they going to create in the future? Yeah, I mean, unless you think your kid's like the next great meme artist, I think social media does them a disservice <laughs> because what they become really good at is, you know, memes and Twitter culture. And I think that's a pretty that's a pretty narrow sort of view. And sure, there's some people who that's great for, but I think for for a lot of people, it's really about finding that thing you can get deep in, you can get weird in. And you know, when it comes to you know screen time or social media, the thing I always remember is that Steve Jobs, you know, the myth goes, I think it's true, but I don't know, is you know he wouldn't let devices into the house. And um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talks about limiting screen time and like. Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, Steve Jobs are limiting screen time, then like we probably all should. Last question is, what would be your parting message? You've talked about the organization and bringing in psychological safety, but for the individual, what would you like them to get out of your book? Well, one thing that I sort of think is important is I'm not saying it's easy. So I think that's important to know. And I think sort of tied to that is, you know, I'm saying that it's possible, but I'm also saying it's a lot of work. And I think it's really important that we stop telling ourselves stories like, oh, I'm not that creative or I just have to find something I'm passionate about. BS. If you want it, you can become incredibly successful creatively. If you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to move, if you're willing to talk to the right people, if you're willing to learn, if you're willing to push down doors, you can do it. That doesn't mean it's guaranteed. It doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean any of that stuff, but you can do it. And so I think the thing I'd leave you with are what are the stories 
you are telling yourself when it comes to creativity? What are the things you've internalized when it comes to creativity? And how can you question those? And how can you break those down? And how can you really start from scratch and really look at yourself and say, what are the things I want to become great at and actually go and become great at them? Where can people find out more about you, Alan, and your book? Yeah, so the book is thecreativecurve.com, bookstores all around the world. And then my website is Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. Brilliant. CEO and founder of Track Maven and author of the fantastic The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, Alan Gannett. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.